You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, we will uh, continue, as Jake said, and Luke will be again in chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up. If you uh, don't, no worries. You can follow along on the screens um, behind me. Uh, If you want to, you can follow along in the sermon notes section in our app. While you're finding Luke 8, I want to just ask you a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hands or shout out the answer, but how many of you are cruise people? Like you, not Tom Cruise people, but cruise ship people. Uh, You like taking cruises. It's interesting when you talk about cruises with people. People are either very much into them or very much not into them. Uh, Sharon and I have been on several cruises. We enjoy them. Uh, My brothers are not so much cruise people. I remember when Sharon and I were planning to go on our first one, a Royal uh, Caribbean cruise, one of my brothers said, uh, no way, not for me. If I want to drown, I can do it much closer to home. (laughs) All right. In in May, May 28th, 29th, I think, um, some of you may have seen the news. There was a, a carnival cruise ship that was returning to Charleston from the Bahamas and ran into a really, really nasty storm off the coast of Charleston. And it really shook up a lot of the passengers, did a, a good deal of damage to the ship. Uh, in fact, several of the, the crew cabins were out of commission for uh, a number of days or weeks due to water damage, not the kind of damage you want on a ship, um, and not also why you want the cheapest rooms down there, right? Uh, but if you're afraid of it, I tell you, get them. You'll drown quickest and have it over with uh, if you need to. Um, but if you have been around uh, open water, if you spent much time on the ocean, uh, especially if you love it and you look forward to it, you know that there, there is a raw and tangible power uh, to deep water to the ocean. There uh, is a a sense of being around something that is very much beyond you and out of your control. It was something that the ancients knew well, and that whether you uh, were an ancient Jew or a pagan of some kind, everyone understood that God or the gods were the only ones or one in charge of the waters and the winds. We come to this morning a story that is very familiar um, to us, but I think quite significant, uh, quite significant as well, because uh, that Carnival cruise ship was not the first and will not be the last ship to encounter uh, really significant storms on the waters. And you don't need to get nervous on a cruise ship unless the crew looks nervous. It's like a flight. However bad you think it's going, just watch the flight attendants. When they can no longer mask their fear, then you're in serious trouble. But as long as they're smiling and seem to have it together, you're probably going to be okay. We see an account here in Scripture in Luke chapter 8 where men who were accustomed, well accustomed uh, to the wild, wild weather um, and seas of the Sea of Galilee find themselves in a predicament that really stirs them up. Let's look at this beginning in verse 22. 
of Luke chapter 8. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Before I go in and finish reading the story, I just, I always, always want to remind you of things like this. These, these are the kinds of details that, that weren't in fiction writing in the day. You didn't put this kind of detail in, in mythical writings. Uh, it's in here because it's the memory of witnesses. Never confuse modern fiction with all of the detail and specifics that we have in modern fiction with all that the world had known of fictional writing in this day. They wouldn't have needed to say, hey, Jesus said to go over the other side of the lake. They wouldn't have needed to say, uh, then they got into a boat and set out. It's like the people at the window of a fast food place. When you order and they say, please pull forward. Thank you. I thought I'd sit here and maybe you'd run it out the back door. I know they're supposed to say that. There's no reason for this to be in here. It doesn't add anything to the story. Verse 23, as they sailed, as they sailed, he fell asleep. That is Jesus. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to a storm now that challenges us to ask ourselves how we see you, Lord, how we see our own circumstances, how we respond to you when troubles come into our own lives. God, they are sure to come in many forms, in many fashions. Father, we face all of the residue of a broken world. So Lord, I pray now and I, I set before you and leave in your good and generous care the collective troubles of those in this room. Father, you know them intimately. You are sovereign over them. God, I pray that in your mercy, you'd help us trust you this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know the story of John Newton, the former um, captain uh, in the uh, British sea services who was the captain of a slave ship, an indentured servant before on um, ships, and he was, he was accustomed to the sea. His greatest uh, work is the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, I hope that's not all you've read of Newton, but it probably is. Uh, Newton has written a lot. You can go on to Amazon and, and type in there uh, John Newton's letters, uh, get a copy of a, a lot of the correspondence that he did with people as Christ changed his life. But one of his lesser known hymns that he wrote in 1779 is entitled, Be Gone, Unbelief, My Savior is Near. 
Newton, like many people, drew inspiration not only from his firsthand experience on the waters, but from the account that we just read. Many, 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 many Christian songwriters, hymn writers, modern worship writers draw inspiration. Uh, This account given in all of the synoptics is one of uh, the most significant inspirations for those writing worship music. That that word synoptics I need to define just means the gospels that are largely uh, the same in, in their portrayal of Jesus biography, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John takes a different run at them for specific reasons, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Begone Unbelief, My Savior is Near, Newton writes this, Begone unbelief, my Savior is near, for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Can you say that this morning? Can you say this morning with Newton and great men and women of Christ throughout history that with Christ in the vessel, you can smile at the storm? I want to just organize, if you will, the the message this morning out of this text under three basic headings, the significance of the storm, the power of Jesus, and the nature of Christian faith. Let's look at the significance of the storm because these weren't These weren't effeminate men that were in the boat with Jesus. These were likely those who had grown up on the Sea of Galilee. Some were hardened, blue-collar fishermen. They they knew the Sea of Galilee really, really well. In their day, as today, the Sea of Galilee was given to to great storms. There is roughly a 10,000-foot difference over about 30 miles between the mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee and the actual Sea of Galilee itself, which sits uh, uh, approximately 600 plus feet below sea level. So the winds come whipping down from those mountains through the valleys, down onto the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is fairly shallow as seas go, um, and it can get whipped up into a fury very, very quickly. These men knew this, though. They were the deadliest catch guys of their day. They weren't overly frightened or prone to panic, but not this time, not this time. What they ran into this day was the equivalent of clear air turbulence in flight. You're going along, everything is fine, everything looks pretty, and all of a sudden, the plane drops a great deal or shakes. Some of you may be like me, more sinful and tickled when people gasp when that happens in the air, but I always get a chuckle out of that. Um, you hear the, the gasp and the shrieks of terror as the plane drops a little bit. Like, if it doesn't stop dropping, I get that. Um, but usually by the time they shriek, we've already stopped, so I don't know what all the panic's about. Um, but I enjoy it nonetheless. So they're, they're, they're setting out to cross the sea. Jesus has a, uh, a providentially appointed uh, appointment with a demon-possessed man. Hopefully none of you have that today. Um, but they're heading out on the Sea of Galilee to cross it. And as they sail, Jesus just falls flat to sleep. Maybe he had the gift that some of you moms have, uh, where uh, on the way to bed almost you fall asleep. My wife has that gift. Uh, when Sharon gets in the bed, I know I have about 90 seconds to make conversation with her, or she's gone. And it doesn't matter what I'm saying or how passionate I am about it. In her mind, I should have gotten to it earlier, because she will go flat to sleep 
while I'm talking to her. And I just lay there envious of that sometimes for hours. Jesus goes right to sleep. And then a squall comes down on the lake. The wording here is a picture almost of an, of an earthquake below the Sea of Galilee that just completely throws the weather out of control. And the boat was being overcome, right? They're, uh, they're pitching out water as fast as they can with buckets. They're throwing things uh, overboard. These men knew when to worry, and they knew that it was time to worry, that this was outside of their control at that time. Significant troubles when they hit your life can do this to you. A phone call, a visit with the doctor, a word from a friend, a word from your boss, sometimes a headline in the news can completely rob what you felt like was, was your character of peace and joy settled in Christ. They realized that they were in great danger. Not just danger, but great danger. As I was reading this this week, I couldn't um, help but think of the line in A Few Good Men when Jack Nicholson is on the stand. He said a few minutes ago, you said, uh, grave danger. I said, uh, danger or grave danger? Is there another kind? And they go back and forth in that movie like that. They're not just in danger, they're in great danger. They know that very soon, it's very likely that this storm is going to take their boat, and don't think canoe, think much larger, is going to take their vessel and all of its contents to a watery grave along with so many others on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 24, the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. In Matthew, they say, Lord. In Mark, they say, teacher. This is the nature of eyewitness accounts. Likely, several of them yelled a lot of it all together. And this wasn't gentle, right? This wasn't like how you wake up the angriest sleeper in your house by nudging them just gently, ever so gently on their shoulder, whispering, whispering sweet nothings kindly to them. Would you... Please wake up. I've put your favorite show on the television. They're calling out to Jesus in despair. They're yelling at Jesus like a parent does a child who's running out into the street. And in a sense here, when you look at this account and you compare all three of them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this sense of, of, of indignation in the disciples, not just fear, but questioning and doubt about who Jesus is and why if he loves them and if he cares about them and if he's the same Jesus who's done all that he's seen, all that they've seen him do up until this point, why he seems to be showing such a lack of care and concern for them. Why would he let them go through this? And if you're honest and you've lived very long with Christ, you have walked through a season where you've wrestled with this. Jesus, if you care about me, if you're concerned about me, if you do indeed have the power to alleviate these things, why, Lord, are you letting me walk through what we're walking through right now? Why, Lord? God, if you are so loving, why can't I pitch like Lily? If you're so loving, why did my husband leave me? If you're so loving, 
Why do I pray over and over and over for a job like this and you won't give it to me? If you're so loving, why did you let this diagnosis come into my life? We understand this. One of the great hymn writers, uh, this, this message, to some of your delight and some of your sheer boredom, will have more lyrics from hymns in it than normal. But one of the great uh, hymn writers of Christian past was named William Cowper. William Cowper, he was born in 1731 and died in 1800. But his life was defined by reoccurring bouts of significant depression the kind of depression that led him to multiple suicide attempts across his life, as well as uh, uh, being um, interned in an asylum multiple times for him to get healthy enough to go back out into society. He was a contemporary of John Wesley and George Whitfield and John Newton and Jonathan Edwards uh, in America. But he was troubled. He was troubled from an early age. And one of his earliest times in an asylum turned out to be a place of grace for him. And I will just say, you never know when God is leading you to a place of grace in the midst of a season of trouble and turmoil. This is how it turned out for Cowper. He met uh, Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, who was an evangelical believer and began to not only care for uh, Cowper psychologically and emotionally, but to minister to him spiritually and talk with him about the love of Christ. One day while he's in that hospital, Cowper finds a Bible and he opens it and his eyes fall on Romans 3.25. And as he begins to read, God opens his eyes, opens the eyes of his spiritually blind heart and saves him redeems him, gives him a a saving hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Cowper's converted. Later, uh, John Newton befriends him and tries to encourage him and pull him out of his depression by taking him on ministering visits with him. They uh, begin to talk and work with one another, writing hymns and putting together an early hymnal. One of the ones that Cowper wrote was entitled, God Moves in a mysterious way. It has uh, worked its way into the vernacular of Western culture now. But I want to read to you just a few, I don't remember what you call them, stanzas, lines, something or other. Uh, Non-musical people call them lines. From God moves in a mysterious way. Cowper writes, it says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides Upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Cowper wrote this the night before he was once again um, placed back in an asylum due to a significant debilitating bout of depression. Do you dare to believe with William Cowper, that the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings 
on your head. That's the significance of storms in the life of Christ's followers. We no less trust God's goodness and his providence in the troubles that hit us than we trust outside of them. But we see also here not just the significance of the storm that sought to completely undermine and destroy not only their understanding of who Jesus was, but their very lives. We see here the sheer power of Jesus himself. They go to him and they wake him, Master, Master, in verse 24. We're going to drown. We're going to drown. And then Jesus does a really unique thing. Look at the latter half of verse 24. He gets up and he rebukes the wind and the raging waters. He rebukes the wind and the raging waters. And if you read this, you've got to ask yourself, why does Jesus speak to the storm? Why are the elements? Can wind hear? Can the seas listen? They're not sentient. They don't have emotions. They, they're not able to, uh, to hear and obey and respond and feel like we do as human beings. No. Jesus speaks to the storm out of an accommodation for the disciples who were present. Jesus could have just blinked and it would have all been calm. He could have thought it calm. Calvin puts it this way, not that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice can reach the elements which were devoid of feeling, Jesus speaks. It was to declare and demonstrate something to the disciples who were being undone by this and who knew along with everyone else in their day that only God could control the wind and the seas. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9 say, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. The disciples knew this. They knew this. They go to Jesus, not sure what he may do, but then he speaks. And what's amazing here is he speaks, he speaks, and he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the waters. Now, why is this? If you've ever been on an angry storm, on the receiving, or an angry sea on the receiving end of a storm, you know that the waters are wild long after the storm has passed. It takes a while for the waters to settle. But in an instant, Jesus stops not only the activity coming from the heavens, but the activity on earth. The winds stop immediately. The sea is as still and clear as glass in an instant. Verse 24 tells us, all was calm. All was calm. Not just the wind, but the sea. Whether you're in middle school or high school, or maybe you're in the golden years of your life right now, or anywhere in between, every season of life holds in it and brings with it unique troubles and potential storms. God wants us as his people to know his power 
in and over everything that comes into our lives. In and over everything that comes into our lives. Jesus just simply speaks as through God's word in Genesis 1. He speaks all of creation into being. I so wish I could do that. I wish I could walk into my house and say, be clean. And it would be. I wish I could look at my floors and say, be shiny. And they would be. I wish I could look at my bank account and say, be enlarged. And it would be. And on and on it goes, but we do not have that kind of power. What we see here are what theologians call some of the incommunicable traits of God, the traits of God that belong only to him, only to him. His unique power, his sovereignty over all that exists. It has led Christians like Elizabeth Elliot, we have a biography from her, of her, and I think a couple of her books in our bookstore out here that would really benefit you to read. But Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. A single simple sentence. God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. Then she follows it with another simple single sentence. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, don't miss this, that will is necessarily, necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Do you believe that this morning? Do you understand that in any circumstance of your life, be there trouble or not, God is up to infinitely, immeasurably, inconceivably more than you could ever imagine? Our minds cannot conceive, cannot contain all that God is doing in any single situation or circumstance in the lives of his children. As a frowning providence hides his smile, much like the clouds can hide the light. Most of you know that for a number of years, uh, we lived in the San Diego area, and uh, without fail, when, we, when I would take off from the airport, I flew in and out regularly to San Diego, you'd have a, a thick, heavy marine layer over there, and it was amazing how, how cloudy and, and, and dreary the day would seem as you're boarding the flight and taking off, and then you fly straight through the clouds to a beautiful, clear, blue, sunny sky. What was on the other side of the clouds was misrepresented to all of us below. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It's that we just couldn't see it for the clouds. That leads us to the nature of Christian faith that we find here. Jesus' response, notice he, he rebukes the wind and the raging water, not his, not his disciples. He simply asks them a question, verse 25. Where is your faith? He asks them. Where's your faith? He doesn't, he doesn't accuse them of not having faith. This is very important. He doesn't encourage them to get faith. He, in a sense, asks them, what are you doing with your faith? You have faith. Where is it? It's clear from Jesus' response that faith is the opposite of what the disciples are showing right now. Faith is the opposite of panic. Church, Christians should be the last people on earth to panic. 
If we truly believe what we say we believe, and God is who we profess him to be, we don't panic. We don't panic. Faith, it's interesting here when you look at this and you, and you play around with the, the wording. Jesus is encouraging them to do something with the faith that they have. A lot of times people talk about faith like, almost like it can just be caught. Like, I, I want to hang around you. I wish I had your, your faith, your kind of faith. Like it just sort of accidentally flows from us. Or it's like central heat and air. It just kicks on when, when it's needed. That's not how faith works. Faith is an exercise of the will for believers. Once we've been caught up by God's mercy and grace in a saving, redeeming relationship with God through Jesus Christ, faith is an exercise of the will. Trust is something we choose to do. Faith in the character and power of God manifests in Jesus Christ. It's something we choose to engage. It's a deliberate action, the deliberate action of trusting in God rather than ourselves or what appears to be happening around us. Because if you look around your world and you try to decide from your circumstances day in and day out whether God loves you or he's pleased with you, you will be an emotional mess day in and day out. If you look around the circumstances of your life and on a daily basis seek to determine by them whether God loves you and is pleased with you, you will be an emotional mess. You will be an emotional mess. Jesus is saying that in their panic, and often in ours, we're refusing to exercise the faith that we have, the faith that has been given to us as a gift from God. Now, there's no doubt that as we exercise faith, those faith muscles grow. They grow. It's no accident that God rarely gives the youngest of believers the most significant trials. Right? God doesn't ask Abram, to sacrifice his son three weeks into meeting him. It's like the guy that takes a girl on a date and after dessert proposes to her. If she's a smart woman, she runs away right after calling 911. (laughs) Jesus was saying to the disciples, and God may be saying to you this morning, that you're refusing to act out of what you already know to be true about me. Only you can choose to act out of what you already know to be true about God. Only you can choose to read Scripture and to stand on what God reveals to us in Scripture and to make decisions based on it, not based on how you feel. Feelings and emotions are a tremendous gift from God, but they are not trustworthy. They are not trustworthy. They must be measured by the truth of God. What's beautiful about this passage, if you look at it in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke, I would say uh, even specifically, it's almost tailored exactly in Mark, but in all three accounts of this event, the language intentionally mirrors the story of Jonah in the boat in Jonah chapter 1. Let me just walk you through a little bit of this real quick. Six ways it mirrors, and then one significant way it does not. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat on a sea. Both boats are overwhelmed by a storm in a way that causes the regular vocational fishermen and sailors to be undone. And the description of the storm is almost identical in this account and in Jonah chapter 1. 
Third way, it's the same. Both Jesus and Jonah are sleeping. Jesus, because he's been ministering day in and day out. Jonah, because he's been running so hard from the Lord. I'll just tell you by an aside, and this is free, that running from the Lord is an exhausting vocation. It is an exhausting vocation. For sailors come to the sleepers in both accounts and tell them we're perishing. Apolumai is the Greek word. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of Jonah chapter 1 and in this account of Jesus on the storm. We're perishing. We're going to be lost, killed, destroyed, ruined, drowned. Fifth, there's a miraculous intervention that God does. And the sea is calmed in both accounts. And six, and if you notice this earlier, you're an advanced student. The sailors in both accounts are every bit as terrified at the end, or maybe more so than they were before the storm was calmed. The disciples, verse 25 tells us that in fear and amazement, in fear, they hadn't showed fear of Jesus before, just fear of the storm. Then when Jesus actually acts on their behalf, God calms the sea, then there's a fear of the power of the one before them. In fear and amazement, they ask one another. They're like, we're not talking to him right now. Right? He just did something, and we're going to give him some space. Any of you who are married understand this. There are moments, there are times when your spouse, how shall we say, loses it. And you know, they need space. And even if they don't, I need space from them. They give Jesus space. Who is this, they ask one another. He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. See, they were running in to the hard realization for a first century Palestinian Jew that this physical, historical man, born in a town they knew, raised by parents that they knew, who traveled the same roads with them, was in fact God in flesh, was Yahweh come to earth, was Emmanuel, God with us. And they all of a sudden were asking the question that we'll be asking in song at Christmas time, who is this who's come among us? They're undone, just like the sailors in Jonah's boat weren't undone. But there's one significant difference. If you remember, Jonah says, in order for this to be calmed, I've got to perish. If I die, you live. Throw me overboard. Throw me into the raging waters, into the storm, and you will be saved. You will be saved. I got to applaud Jonah's integrity there. Because I got to tell you, in full disclosure, I would not do that. I would say, let's put our heads together and let's see if we can figure a way out of this. And if we can't, let us break off the largest things that float that we can and may the best man make it to shore. I am not a throw me over the boat kind of guy for people I don't know. In fact, as some of you might consider me unpastoral at this point, Jake certainly does, but I don't care. Um, I prefer not even to engage in lengthy conversations with people I don't know when I'm out in public. I'm like, we're not friends. I'm just checking out. Let's just move it right along. 
That's the only difference. But is it? Is it? Some of you who are Bible students will remember that Jesus said in Matthew 12 that he's the true Jonah. He's the better Jonah. The, the fullness of what Jonah was a type of has come. Here, he doesn't call on anyone. He calms the storm and saves the disciples. But one day, Jesus knows, he knows in this boat, he knows in Matthew 12 when he's describing himself as the true Jonah, that he's going to still all the waves and all the storms. And he's going to create new heavens and new earth. As Tim Keller says, he's going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, and kill death. Jesus knows that one day all storms are going to be gone. And he's only able to do that because he takes the walk to the cross that was yours and mine to take. He's thrown into the ultimate storm, the storm of God's justice and judgment. He's thrown into the ultimate raging waters of sin and death and divine judgment. The only storm that can actually eternally forever sink you and me. And the storm that's coming for all of us one day sooner or later as we're called by the God who will no longer be pushed back on to stand before him and give an account for our lives. And Jesus amazingly turns his face directly into the storm. This storm of eternal justice for our sakes. And he pays the price. He dies the death. He receives and accepts and takes on our place the just judgment for our sin and rebellion the death that is required of rebels. He's thrown into the storm as Jonah was that you might be saved, that I might be saved. Friends, this is not something you can do. You don't have anything to bargain with God. You don't have anything to place on the table and say, how about you receive this and I receive salvation and good standing before you. He was broken so I can be made whole, so you can be made whole. He was judged for our sin so that we might be declared innocent, righteous, and free. And when you get this, when you really, by God's grace and mercy, get this in your soul, you never doubt again that he loves you. You may not understand what's happening around you or why, but it doesn't shake your understanding that he loves you. You never think when a storm comes your way that it's the displeasure of God in your life because you know that all of the wrath and all of the judgment and all of the condemnation that is due humanity for our sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And now as Romans 8 so triumphantly declares, there is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ. None. It doesn't matter what you may feel on a given day. A few minutes ago, we sang, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. Do you know what people see in your strength and in your victory and in your winning? They see you. But when you can walk tall and straight 
with peace and joy when troubles hit? In times of despair and need? You know who people see? They see your Savior. They see the one whose power is displayed in and through you. We started with John Newton and we'll end with Newton now. One of the things that Newton so eloquently wrote about and talked about was the kind of tipping point that all professing believers come to in our lives where something happens, some trial, some trouble, some storm. And we have to decide if, if we can actually trust what we say we know about God. Some of you, to be honest, you haven't, you haven't made it there yet. You're still in or out based on the circumstances. God is great. God is terrible. I love him. I don't trust him. But Newton said, for lack of a better term, this tipping point comes, a significant major one for all of us at some point. We have to decide. We have to ask ourselves the questions. Is he loving? Is he wise? Is he good? And if you ask yourselves those questions and you wrestle it out and you decide, yes, he is loving, he is wise, he is good, and you have confidence in God's character, then you act completely different on the other side of that tipping point than both non-believers and professing believers who have not come to that conclusion, who do not yet have the confidence that, yes, he actually is good, he is loving. He is kind, he is powerful, and it doesn't matter what's happening or not happening to me or in my life right now. In response to a woman who had written to Newton, one of the greatest treasures that the church has today are the combined letters of John Newton, the correspondence um, that he engaged in with people who would write to him. And this lady wrote to Newton and she was in the center of the storm in her life and she was wavering. She thought she knew God. She thought she'd placed her trust in Christ. But she wasn't sure what was going on. Newton, in a very short section of this letter, simply said this. God could have, he could have overruled every difficulty in your way. Had he seen it expedient. But he is pleased to show you that you depend not on men, but upon himself. He who has begun a good work in you really is able to carry it on in defiance of all seeming hindrances and make all things, even those which have the most unfavorable appearances, work together for your good. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God is who he is? That he is good and beautiful, great and trustworthy, loving and kind and compassionate regardless of the circumstances that come your way, regardless of loss, regardless of pain, regardless of unfulfilled dreams or unanswered prayers. He's near. And he's always doing infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably, inconceivably more 
than you can comprehend or imagine in any given circumstance in your life. That's the one we come before this morning and that's the one I encourage you to respond to, to place your confidence in and to decide for now and forevermore he is who he says he is. And no set of circumstances changes that. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And as I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. Part of the reasons, uh, part of the reason that, that Christians have been so defined by faithfulness and generosity across the centuries is because we know this God. We know this God to be the one who takes care of us, the one who gives us all that we have, the one who is ultimately the owner of everything and every account we have, every material possession we have. We simply steward for the advance of his gospel, the good of his kingdom, the needs of the poor, the ministry of his church. I pray that you know that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do declare with confidence this morning that regardless of how things look at times, regardless of how difficult certain seasons of life are, Father, regardless of what may be happening with our, our parents or our children, our friends, our job, our health, our finances, that you are sovereign and good, that beyond the clouds we see, there's beauty and brightness and warmth. Father, I pray specifically right now for those who are about to give. It's such a sacred act of obedience, worship, and trust in you. God, for those who've given throughout the week, online or by text, Father, I pray that they would know your delight and your blessing in their life. God, that in their obedience, you would increase their faith and their joy as they trust in you. God, draw us all closer to you as we respond to your word. I ask it in Jesus' powerful, good name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.